We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, and my co-host as usual, Joe Quinn. Hi there. This week, British State Terror in Ireland. We're interviewing Anne Cadwallader. Anne, originally from London, England, is an experienced journalist. She has worked for the BBC, Irish State Broadcaster, RTE, the Irish Press, Independent News Network, Network News and Reuters. She spent a large part of her career in journalism reporting from Northern Ireland. She is the author of Holy Cross, The Untold Story, and the groundbreaking Lethal Allies, British Collusion in Ireland. In 2009, she gave up journalism to work for the Pat Finucane Centre for Human Rights in Armagh as an investigator and caseworker. So a big warm welcome to you, Anne. Thank you very much. So, Anne, if I could just start off with a question. I mean, your background uh, is you're a, you're a former BBC and RTE journalist. You've written for, I mean, a lot of other mainstream uh, media uh, publications, like, uh, as, as Neil was mentioning, Reuters and uh, Ireland on Sunday, etc. Um, so, but Neil also mentioned that you were involved very much in the Northern Ireland conflict uh, in terms of reporting on it in your capacity as a journalist. I mean, was that by was that by choice, or how did you actually end up uh, in the worst of the the troubles, reporting on the worst of the troubles at that time? Yes, it was by choice. I was working. I did my uh, my degree and my postgraduate diploma in England. Um, but then in 1981, if you can think back that far, the biggest news story in the world was Bobby Sands' hunger strike in in Longkesh in the Mays Jail. Right. here in, in Northern Ireland. It was the biggest story in the world. I mean, everybody was hanging on the every word on the radio to hear whether he was still alive or whether he had passed on. And I came across here to, to Belfast in Northern Ireland uh, for my holidays that year because I'm just absolutely so fascinated by it. And I wanted to, as a, as a trainee, young journalist trying to make my career, my na- name for myself, I was interested in what was happening. And when I came to Northern Ireland, it was completely different to what I'd expected. And I went back to work in England. I was working in Yorkshire at the time for the Bradford Telegraph and Argus, a good newspaper in, uh, in Yorkshire in Northern England, determined to return to Northern Ireland and work here. I applied to everywhere I could think of, and one of the few places I applied was the BBC, and I was lucky enough to get a, get a job with them. So over I came in 1981 to work for the BBC. Okay, and what was your? I mean, you said you said that um, you said that uh, it was very different from what you expected in Northern Ireland. What was your impression, being uh, an English uh, person and, and viewing it until then from afar, from from England? What was your impression of the differences from what you what you? Uh, well, I guess I hadn't really thought about it very much, actually. Um, although obviously it should, uh, it was and should have been a very major news story. Um, as, a, as a journalist, even I, I really hadn't thought that much about Northern Ireland. I was aware there was a conflict on over here. I had worked in London and I had heard bombs exploding in London, 
But even so, I hadn't given it that much thought. And so when I came over here and realized the strength of view, the strength of opinion on both sides, and the very real threat of violence that hung over everyone, and I thought to myself, well, I'm involved in anti-apartheid in Britain, and that's on the, the other side of the world. And here in Northern Ireland, there were civil rights issues that were happening right under my nose, and as part of the jurisdiction in which I lived, that I didn't know that much about, and I just thought that was horrendous. When I was over here, I witnessed an orange parade, which kind of, I didn't expect to see that, um, and I was pretty taken aback by it, people waving Union flags and other people scattering away as far as far and as fast as they could. Um, and I witnessed a UVA rally on the Shankill Road, and I saw bars with huge white boulders outside them to prevent bombs taking place. I, of course, I was aware of the IRA's campaign in Britain because I'd heard the bombs myself. And all of a sudden, something which had been just words in a newspaper to me became something incredibly real, incredibly intense, very unexpected and utterly fascinating. Um, issues such as when is it right to take up arms? When is violence ever justified, if ever? Where issues about um, power, domination, control, uh, nationalism, religion, all of that, huge issues that are relevant even today in, in all sorts of other parts of the world as well as here in Ireland, suddenly became so very, very real that this was happening right in front of me. And I became totally absorbed with it and, and couldn't possibly have gone back to England and not come back over here. Mm. I'd have come back no matter what, but I was lucky enough to get a job to work for the BBC. So, I mean, my understanding is that at that time and even still today, a lot of um, people, particularly in England, would have had a very uh, kind of, uh, I suppose, official understanding of the conflict and that this was this was a terrorist yes, organization yeah, did you have that understanding when you came yeah yeah i mean i believe that um well just to take one side of it for example i read lots of stories in the british newspapers about the ira being you know godfathers and involved in sleazy rackets uh, one-armed bandits and taxi firms and I didn't have any idea that there was any popular support on the ground for the IRA. Now, rightly or wrongly, there was. Whether you agree with it or not, when I came over here and found that ordinary, decent Catholic people were out on the streets demonstrating in support of the IRA hunger strikers, it absolutely gobsmacked me. I just couldn't believe. I didn't realize that this was a campaign that was rooted in the, in the population. Now, I mean, whether that was right or not, the fact is it existed. People were out there demonstrating in their thousands in support of IRA hunger strikers. And this was not what I expected. Okay, so you, to a certain extent you had your eyes open to the, the much more complex and nuanced nature. And of the rest of my countrymen, unfortunately, um, didn't and still don't. Um, but I firmly believe that if people in Britain knew what had been going on here and had been given a better idea by the media of what, had been, what was happening here during the conflict, that the conflict would have ended a whole lot earlier than it did. And um, the, the peace process would have come in the 1970s instead of the 1990s. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and a lot of people lost their lives unnecessarily because, excuse me, I'm going to have to cough. <coughs> Sorry, I was holding that back. Bless you. Okay. I'll, I'll pick up from there. A whole lot of people lost their lives unnecessarily simply because uh, we, us, journalists, the media, didn't do our job properly and didn't convey to the ordinary people in Britain what was really happening on the ground in Northern Ireland. And that's a great pity. And what kind of experience did you have in terms of uh, trying to convey the truth as a journalist journalist in Northern Ireland, working for BBC Northern Ireland? Well, I spent 30 years, I suppose, trying to do that. Um, I was working, when I was working for BBC Northern Ireland, I was largely broadcasting to the local audience in, in, in the six counties in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I worked in Dublin, I was working for the uh, Irish press in Dublin as a political correspondent out of Leinster Household, and I was also working for BBC down there too. Um, and I'd largely been responsible for broadcasting to Northern Ireland and to the 26 counties to the south as mm-hmm. well, not to Britain. But whenever I've had the opportunity, I have certainly tried... <clears throat> both on a personal basis, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> both on a personal basis and also on a professional one, to do as good a job I could, as I could as a journalist. And when I quit journalism five years ago to work for the uh, Pat Van Eken Centre, one of the reasons I think I did that was I felt I'd spent 30 years trying to do my very best as a journalist and maybe it was time to try another way, which was to become more directly involved in human rights issues and in, in exploring and researching human rights issues and then uh, then telling people about them. Okay. Was there a defining moment in your time uh, spent uh, as a journalist in Northern Ireland uh, looking at the, at the conflict? Was there a defining, a defining moment where you started to realise that things really weren't uh, yeah, as, I as they so seemed? Yeah, I suppose could If I had to pick out one moment, I suppose... The very first time I was on night duty at the BBC in Belfast, um, at that time it was a 24-hour newsroom because so many things were happening around the clock, and one person would be left in the in the wee hours of the night between midnight and four in the morning when other people would come in at four. People would go home at midnight and, and other people would come in at four o'clock. But for those four hours you were on your own between midnight and four a.m. And I got a phone call that one night, one, the very first night I was on overnight duty on my own in the BBC newsroom in Belfast from the RUC press office to tell me that um, three men had been shot dead after their car broke through an RUC roadblock and the police had opened fire to protect themselves in self-defence and had killed these three, three men dead. Um, I got the statement and I reported on it, I repeated it, I wrote up the story for the morning news bulletins and it was only after that that I discovered that the whole thing was lie. that there was no roadblock, that the men, three men killed, had been unarmed, that the police who'd opened fire um, had ambushed them and it was no, there was no question of self-defense. Well, these killings later became the subject of the Stalker and Samson investigations, the so-called shoot-to-kill episode in the early 1980s. Um, and that was my role in it, and it's not one I'm particularly proud of, but it's certainly, when I came to Northern Ireland, I believe that the police very, by and large told the truth, um, but the, I was very severely disabused of that. Right, so you said you retired uh, 
was it five years ago or you joined the Yes, I joined the PFC five years ago now. Right, and before that, you were um, part of the, uh, or you were involved in some way in the historical inquiries team as well? Well, no, that was after I joined the Patent Okay. Um, I, I, I was involved with the HET only as far as I would have very occasionally interviewed members of it. Um, the, the historical inquiries team was a unit set up that was semi-independent from the police service in Northern Ireland, which the then chief constable initiated as... Um, a method, I suppose, of shifting from his own responsibility, uh, responsibility for investigating the past. Hugh Ward, who was the then chief constable, who'd taken over as chief constable after it changed from being the Royal Ulster Constabulary to the new police service of Northern Ireland. He found that an increasing amount of his officer's time was being taken up by investigating unresolved murders from the troubles, from the conflict times. And so he set up a new unit, which was semi-independent in the service of Northern Ireland, called the Historical Inquiries Team, and they were responsible for investigating um, unsolved, unresolved murders, and indeed, in the end, all murders that had taken place during the conflict. And as a journalist, I would very occasionally would interview uh, people from the HET, Historical Inquiries Team. But then when I joined the Pat Newton Centre, it became a key part of my responsibility, because we were working and engaging with the HET, to try and find out as much as possible about the deaths of the families for whom, with whom we work. Um, and that was very, a very key part of my job at that time. Mm. And the impression I get is that the Pat Finucane Fe- uh, Centre, unlike the uh, historical um, inqui- inquiries team, which is now suspended, that you said it was the historical inquiries team was, uh, was semi-independent from the... Yes, we're completely independent. Right. PFC is a completely independent organisation what's called an NGO, a non-governmental organization. Mm-hmm. We're involved in campaigning for human rights on many different levels, one of the most important being that we work with people whose loved ones uh, died during the conflict, many of whom we believe uh, were died unnecessarily because of, uh, of collusion, illegal collusion between members of, this, of the security forces and loyalist paramilitary groups, i.e. met people who should... Um, who were paid and, and uh, responsible for upholding the law um, and, in, and um, enforcing the law, and those um, in, the, in the loyalist paramilitary groups who were dedicated to murder uh, against the law. So uh, one of our main issues is to work with families who believe their loved ones died as a result of collusion between two groups of people who should have been um, completely opposed to each other, but we believe we secretly work together in many instances to, to cause the deaths of many uh, totally uninvolved civilians who, uh, who were just going about their ordinary everyday business. And, and that, as a result of that work, uh, the book, Lethal Allies, became written. Right, and, that, and Lethal Allies, and it's a fantastic book. It's, I mean, I've read quite a few books on the conflict in Northern Ireland and this book, your book, Lethal Allies, British Collusion in, in Ireland, is, um, I have to say, is by far, by far the best in the sense that it really leaves uh, the reader well, with I no... Well, I take very little credit for that because 15 years, well, 10 years of work had gone into Lethal Allies before I even joined the Patrick Centre. But as a journalist, when I did join, they'd done a, most of the research had been done uh, and they were determined to try and bring it um, into a book to be published as far and wide as, and wide as possible. And, of course, as a journalist, I was ideally placed to both not only to read all the research that they had, but to try and turn it into a readable book. Um, and the book 
I, I'd already been asked twice before to write books about collusion, but I turned down the request on the, because I believed it was impossible to prove collusion. Because collusion is something that's terribly private, very, very difficult to prove, because it leaves no evidence. Um, of course, the resulting acts of murder, of, of bombings and shootings as a result of collusion, of collusion they need plenty of evidence. But the original, the original crime, if you want, the original sin, is, um, is a secret one. It's like conspiracy. If you have loyalist paramilitaries meeting and discussing with, member, with members of the police force and British soldiers um, on how to kill people and where to kill people and who to kill, that will be private. And unless one of them breaks and speaks about it themselves and becomes a whistleblower, then it's very, very difficult to prove mm -hmm. that it's happened. And I wasn't interested in writing a book that wasn't conclusive. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in destroying my reputation by writing a book that everybody could point out and say, well, this is just speculation, this is rumor, this is propaganda. I, was, I would only have been interested in writing a book where we could nail it, where we could prove it. And I think that that's what we've done with Lethal Allies. People can pick up this book and they can read it, and they, they won't be saying to themselves, this isn't maybe 8% true or even 90% true. What's in the book has not been challenged either in detail or in principle in the two years or so since it's been published. So people can be sure that when they read this book, they are reading the God's honest truth, not yes. something that's been made up. Absolutely. And like I said, it's a fantastic book because it does that and because, I suppose, of your background and your journalistic uh, training, you are the ideal person to, to put together this information in the way that you have. And But the, the impression, the overall impression I'm left with from reading this book is that the British state, effectively, in its, in its involvement in Northern Ireland, uh, contrary to what it claimed that it was there to kind of keep the peace and fight terrorism, that it was actively involved in yes. continuing the conflict, in furthering the conflict, even to the point of maybe even considering pushing a, a civil war on the people of Northern Ireland. Yeah, I, I don't think um, I don't think they I don't think they they realised what the outcome would be. Um, I think they decided fairly early on that they weren't going to be able to defeat the IRA militarily. Um, they all, I think they also decided, and indeed in, in the documents they show we, we found them saying that they couldn't fight the war on two fronts, that they couldn't genuinely be neutral, they couldn't be umpires holding holding the the, the jumpers during a game of cricket that was going mm. on pitch, you know, they decided early on that they were going to have to take sides, but they didn't want the world to know that, and so they became involved in collusive activity, which changed its nature during the course of the conflict, collusion in the 1980s wasn't the same as in the 1970s, but um, they, they must have known very early on that uh, if they created a regiment, which they did, called the Ulster Defence Regiment, that it would be inevitably be infiltrated by loyalist paramilitaries who would use it to train, to arm themselves, to target people. Uh, and that is exactly what happened. Um, weapons went missing month after month after month and were being used to kill people. They knew that. They did nothing about it. Uh, it probably goes, it's probably even worse than that. But at the very, very lowest level, there was collusion um, and, and it was known about, and nothing was done to stop it. Um, and it's also very interesting, one of the, one of the uh, I, I, as, as I've said, a lot of the book was researched before I joined the BFC, 
But one thing I did do, and which I which I take, do take credit for, is that we drew up a list of all the people who died in this series of murders, and there was 120 plus of them. And then we drew a line, and we put on one side of the piece, piece of paper all those people who died uh, at random, who were just terribly, terribly unlucky to be in a bar that was uh, bombed or, or, or sprayed with, with bullets, machine gun bullets. And on the other side of the piece of paper, we put all those people who were deliberately targeted for who they were, for what they were, um, who were killed in their own homes, for example, or who were killed at, at their own work, or who were killed as they turned into the driveway on their way home from work. And those people, we, we came up with some very interesting findings, was that all of those people, with one exception, all of those people were either they had a bit of land or a bit of property, or they'd just been promoted at work, or they, would, they just started a new company, or they were self-employed. They were all people of standing within the community. Um, none of them, none of them had any paramilitary links at all, um, with one exception. None of them had any paramilitary links at all. Um, if they had any political links, uh, it was with the Social Democratic and Labour Party, which was the more moderate of the two main Catholic parties, mm -hmm. the two nationalist parties, not Shinbun, not the DRA. And the only conclusion, the only conclusion we can draw from that is that these people are being deliberately targeted in order to spread fear through the community. Because it was their very ordinariness singled them out. The fact that um, nobody would look at them after they'd been killed and say, ah, well, yes, they were involved in active republicanism. They'd taken up a gun. Or they were involved in any way, shape, or form with republicanism, either militarily or politically. These are people who weren't involved in any of that. And therefore, what that meant was that anybody, anybody could be a target. But it didn't matter what your politics were. You could be killed. You could be singled out and killed. And, it, and the, the idea, I think, was to terrorize the nationalist community into spitting out the IRA, into turning their backs on the IRA. But it didn't have that result. The result was to prolong the conflict because the entire Catholic population knew what was going on. The priests knew what was going, what was going on. The politicians knew what was going on. They had delegation after delegation to London, to Dublin, to Stormont, saying something had to be done in Mid-Ulster to break this gang apart that was spreading so much blood around them. They knew what was happening. Everybody knew what was happening. And it turned people not against the IRA, but against the state, that they knew was responsible for these for this series of things. It was completely counterproductive. Not only was it immoral, illegal in both domestic and international law, but it was totally counterproductive. And I think this has very important lessons for today's so-called war on terror, wherever it's being waged. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. Um, I mean, it makes when I read about what uh, went on in Northern Ireland and understand the kind of the very duplic duplicitous nature of, of the state's uh, actions. Uh, it makes me wonder about uh, if that, if those kind of policies and that kind of strategy are being used elsewhere around the world today. I think what, what it means is there's no quick fix, you know. I think the British thought maybe there would be a quick fix 
in the 1970s. If they decided to give the loyalists a bit of leeway so that they could spread terror around them, that this would defeat the IRA, it would bring people to heel. It would cause nationalism and uh, to, to lower their political aspirations and to go back to the situation that existed pre-civil rights days. But there is no quick fix. But if you break human rights, you don't. You may terrify people in the short term, but in the long term, you set up. You make people determined to resist you. Uh, and really, breaking human rights is never, never a good idea. Whether it's in Guantanamo, whether it's in Iraq or Iran or in Afghanistan, it's not good. It's not a productive uh, policy to break to breach human rights because you create more enemies mm-hmm. and you force people to stand up against you. Yeah, um, some of the stuff is really horrifying. I mean, your book is a very read, but... Uh, it was traumatic to read, I can tell you. It's traumatic to write as well. I, I can imagine. I watched the video of you and at the launch of the book in um, uh, on the Falls Road, I think, in Belfast. Yes. And uh, I, you got, uh, understandably, quite emotional when you were recalling well, some of the members. Well, that was because while we were writing the book, we weren't sure if there would be you know, if there would be an audience for it. Right. You know, maybe people would say, oh, well, so what? Um, but we were we were very gratified when uh, we didn't know how many people would turn up to that launch in Belfast, whether they'd be 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 100. But, you know, the guts of a 1,000 people turned up. The book was sold out before it was even published. Um, you know, it was an immensely emotional time for us to realize that the 10 years' work that had gone on before I joined the PFC and the five years' work that had gone on after I joined the PFC was going to receive um, a popular welcome. Um, And it it has done, and the book has been reprinted eight times now and has done very well right across the world. The one place it hasn't done very well is in Britain, but Mm -hmm. um, we have not given up on that. Um, We had the publishers got a, a, a... our, our publishers, Mercia Press, in Cork, hired a publicist in Britain at the time of the book's publication. And um, the publicist read the book and was very impressed by it, but uh, she, she, she contacted everyone that uh, she usually contacts when she's involved in a book launch, and not one single magazine or radio show called her back in Britain. Mm. Um, and although there's been interest as far as Australia and New Zealand, I've just returned from Australia and New Zealand yeah. on a, on a on a speaking tour there, but the British people, unfortunately, are still left in the dark. Um, there's a kind of glass ceiling which it's very hard to break through in order to reach people in Britain to tell them about the true nature of the conflict in Northern Ireland, but we haven't given up. Um, we're still plowing on, and we will get there in the end. It's just taking much longer than we thought. It's, it's very interesting. What do you think that mechanism is when, you, when your publicist tried to get it, the book uh, kind of spread around in, in, in Britain? Uh, I think it's uh, persistence uh, in Britain. I, I, unfortunately, although I'm British myself, obviously, um, I think there is a huge resistance in Britain to looking honestly at uh, at the government's role in Irish affairs. Uh, I think it's probably because Ireland is so close to, to Britain, um, and people in Britain tend to associate Irish people with Baldunican, Graham Norton, Terry Wogan... <laughs> Um, etc. I, I think there's a resistance there. I would I hesitate to call it racism, but I think there's a huge resistance there to taking the Irish people seriously. 
Of course, the IRA has its own uh, responsibility for that. People obviously uh, recoil from what the IRA did during the conflict and don't particularly wish to think about it. Um, it's a very hard subject to, to, to grapple with and a very difficult, unpopular, unfashionable subject to grapple with. But one nevertheless that I think that if the British government and the British people are going to take any kind of responsibility for what happened in Ireland, they should really examine the past and examine what their, government, what their government's role was in Ireland. And, um, I mean, as a people, I don't think ordinary British people are to be, are to be held responsible. I would hold the governments responsible, not the people, but the one responsibility people do have, and that is to, to inform and educate themselves about conflicts in which their own government plays a part and in which their own taxes paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the name of the NGO that that uh, you kind of that you work with and uh, through which your book was <coughs> published, uh, the Pat Fanukan Center. Um, Pat Fanukan is uh, obviously it's a very appropriate uh, name. Yeah, for I mean, the kind Pat of work you do. Was a very successful Catholic lawyer who, as you know, was was murdered um, by um, a group of people that included British military intelligence. And this is not just stalking out of turn here. It's been proven and accepted and apologized the British government. David Cameron has apologized profusely to the, to the Fanukan family for the involvement of state forces in his murder. He was a very successful lawyer. He was beginning to, coincidentally, actually, he was beginning to um, force disclosure in open court about the shoot to kill episodes of the early 1980s that I was speaking about some time earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he also believed in the power of the law and in the principles of law, which is that everybody is equal before the law, and in the principles of human rights. He believed in those to vindicate people's, people's rights uh, and not to take up the gun and not to become involved in violence. And we too, like him, believe that it's only in... in abiding and enforcing and respecting human rights and the rule of law, that is the only guarantee we have um, that, you know, it's the, it's the only protection we have mm-hmm. against the law of the jungle. Yeah. I mean, Pat, Pat Finucane's murder was, I think, a, a very clear, one very clear example of the British state forces using a, a kind of a proxy army to uh, to kill, to get rid of someone that to them was a was a threat to their, to yeah, their agenda. That side, indeed. Um, but they have so far managed to protect themselves from the full rigors of the truth on this, because the Papenukin's family is demanding, and it was indeed promised, a full independent uh, public inquiry into his murder, and the British have reneged on that promise, um, and they haven't got their inquiry. They've had various investigations carried out by Sir John Stevens, former Metropolitan Police Commissioner in London, and um, by, by others as well. But they have not had the full public inquiry, which would mean full disclosure of all the facts about Pat Benukin's murder, that they were promised. Um, in fact, the British government changed the rules on public inquiries just after there were, they, they promised to hold a public inquiry into Pat's murder, uh, simply one, one would fail to avoid the truth coming, coming out about how high up the chain of command, knowledge of the plans to murder Pat Benukin went. Yeah. Um, Can I ask you, um, um, 
how come the book is limited to a certain set of, of murders and bombings over well, a certain an time period? Yeah. yeah, that's a very easy, it's a very easy answer to give you because we only had that information. We didn't, I mean, we, we could have written more, but we, the book is entirely based on factual documentary information, okay. which we got, not, we didn't get access to the RUC archives. We got access to the HET, and they, uh, they consisted of mostly of former British police officers who were security vetted and who therefore had access to the RUC archive. Uh, the RUC archive, as you can well understand, is not open to people like me, human rights activists, to wander in and look at documents. We can't get in there, but the HET could get in there. The HET officers could get in there, having been security vetted and uh, being former police officers themselves, had access to the files. Um, so they had access to the files, and we therefore had access to the files through them. Um, um, but we only had uh, these, these murders that we've covered are the only murders to whose files the HET at that time had access. So those are the only murders that we could investigate. Okay. We're, involved, we're, we're aware that there are other series of murders in other parts of the North, and at other times, for example, in East Tyrone in the 1980s, where collusion was possibly even more targeted and controlled than it was during these series of murders. But we haven't got access to that information. That information is kept under lock and key, away from the families who lost their loved ones, away from human rights investigators such as ourselves, and it is, is hidden from public view. And until there is an, an agreed mechanism to investigate the past in Northern Ireland, they will remain hidden from public view. Those secrets are, will remain secret. The only accident, the reason that we limited ourselves to these 120 murders that took place between 1972 and 1976, very largely in Midalster, but also in Dublin and Monaghan, is that we had access to the files. Okay. Uh, but even from that limited disclosure, let's call it that, the case is solid. I mean, what was yes. maybe known to the Catholic nationalist community from the beginning, but which was contested for decades, is now clear for everyone That's to see. People have been talking about collusion for, for, for decades. That's the whole point. People knew, in inverted commas, it was going on. The dogs in the street, as they say, knew it was going on. But the dogs in the street is not evidence. What we got was evidence, hard evidence, that is incontrovertible and indeed has not been challenged in the two years since the book has been published. So that's the difference. People can say, oh, well, we knew this was going on. Yeah, you might have known it was going on, but you had no proof mm -hmm. until we produced it. And that's the difference. The difference is that we can prove that this happened. And you mentioned the uh, Dublin and Monaghan bombings, which were in the Irish Republic, um, yes. officially another state at the time. And um, so this was a, the attacks being spread further afield than just Northern Ireland down into the south. Yeah. And um, what's your, I know you well, covered, covered in the book, the book, but what's your... the same gang was involved. Who? Well, our firm belief is the same gang that right. was involved, or permutations of the same gang. It was the same group of loyalists in liaison with, um, with, mem with members of the RUC and the UDR. We firmly believe that the Dublin Monaghan bombings, the single largest loss of life in the entire history of the conflict, was carried out by, by the same kind of people, by the same group of people. But is there, um, ev is there evidence of British state yes, involvement? Yes, there, 
Yes, there is. If you, you can uh, easily access that information by going to our, our sister organization, Justice for the Forgotten, that speaks out on behalf of the Dublin and Monaghan bombing victims. Um, they have on their web, website, they have the full uh, copies, the full verbatim reports from the Barron inquiry that was ordered by Dáil Éireann, by the Irish Parliament, mm -hmm. into the Dublin Monaghan bombings, and which d did turn up much evidence of state involvement in those bombings as well. The three bombings in Dublin and the one in Monaghan that all took place on the 17th of May 1974. So that can be easily accessed. The, the, under Mr Justice Henry Barron, there was a series of inquiries into those bombings and it did turn up evidence that the same uh, miscreants who were involved in the murders north of the border were also involved in those attacks as well. Uh, and the evidence is there, the forensic, ballistic, and other evidence is there to be seen. And it's easily accessed via the Justice for Forgotten website. But, I mean, that amounts to an attack effectively by the British, the British government on uh, the Irish state. On It was al almost could be construed as, as an act of war. But it has to be said that the Irish government's response was fairly muted to that. Yes, I mean, that's why it's called Justice for Forgotten, because it was really so embarrassing. Uh, that Dublin would much rather have just ignored it, even ignored the deaths of its own people in, in order to promote and protect its friendship and its alliance with London against the main enemy, which was always seen to be the IRA. Mm. Um, now, the, the Mr Justice Henry Barron, when he conducted his inquiry, did not get full access to all the files on Dublin Monaghan. The British, um, the, the British government has refused to share them with the inquiry on the grounds of national security, and one can only imagine what that um, what that euphemism, national security, stands for. Um, uh, and to this day, they have still refused. And the Irish government's position is that every time it meets the British government and its representatives to discuss the North and to discuss legacy issues like this, that the Irish government does ask the British government to reveal those files. Now, we originally, just as forgotten, and the Pat Pinnacan Centre were initially asking for uh, those files to be revealed publicly, but we have compromised our position on the basis that the British say they can't release the files for national security reasons. We've therefore compromised and said, okay, if you won't let us see the files, maybe we'll let an agreed judicial figure of, of sub substantial standing that we can agree on see those files instead of them being released publicly maybe an international judicial figure should be able to view those files and, um, and, and, and report on what they contain subject to, to genuine concerns of national security. Um, but that uh, has not been acceptable to the British side either, no. which has also which has led even the Irish president, um, uh, Michael D. Higgins, to, to make an appeal as well uh, that they should release those files. Uh, until they do, the families won't give up um, and will continue campaigning. I mean, it's pretty obvious to me anyway that um, when, when governments like that talk about in the interest of national security, what they're talking about is in the interest of not making the government look bad. Yeah, I'm not, not, I mean, pr presumably, I mean, one can only presume, and this is speculation, um, that um, there were informers involved agents and informants involved. Right. And, and maybe the we, we wonder, I mean, one, one theory, one theory again, it's a new theory, is that the explosives were, were, were 
early bonds themselves were constructed by people who, uh, who had some experience of them from within the security forces. Uh, we just don't know. Um, unlike the other, uh, unlike the other cases that we report on in the book, there is still a huge question mark hanging over the extent of, of British security force involvement in those bombings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just simply don't know at the moment because the files haven't been released. And uh, uh, am I correct, Anne, to say that the Dublin bombings were the single biggest atrocity during the whole conflict? Yeah, more people lost their lives on that one day than lost their lives on any other single day during the entire That's astonishing. So it's a conflict in ostensibly a separate state, the worst atrocity of which happened in what rationally would be its its natural ally with the victims in that other conflict. And worse than not just just putting a lid on it, you you make the case in your book that the Dublin government's reaction – um, was to effectively in, in, in enhance their own involvement yes, uh, in working have, against the IRA and Irish nationalism. Dublin's um, many, not all, but many, many Irish politicians at that time said, well, if it wasn't for the IRA, then we wouldn't have been attacked in Dublin and Monaghan. So we won't blame the loyalists who detonated the bombs will blame the IRA who prompted the loyalists to detonate the bombs. And so rather than focus on the loyalists, they focused yet again, they redoubled their efforts against the IRA rather than, than try and track down the loyalists who were directly responsible for the creation and detonation of the bombs, three in Dublin and one in Monaghan, killing 34 people. Uh, two more than were killed. I mean, it's always horrible to do a, a body count, but two, uh, 32 people were killed in the Oma bombing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 34 people were killed in the Dublin. I mean, nobody should be killed at all, ever, anywhere. But, I mean, if you're going to look at the kind of the worst atrocity, the worst single loss of life was Dublin bombing on that one day. 34 people, including um, one uh, full-term unborn, unborn child. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that response from the Irish government is uh, is extremely uh, obtuse uh, to to blame the IRA. That's more or less like saying, well, if the IRA just would stop doing what it's doing, and uh, uh, go, if the if the nationalists in the north would just uh, lie down and take the, the discrimination against them and, and and their status as second class citizens, then everything would be okay. I mean, it seemed to me that the Dublin bombings were more about sending a warning to the uh, from the British state to the Irish state that you this could can certainly be brought look to your door. You could certainly look at it that way, and there would be a logical, there would be a, 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 logical, um, a logical argument there. That's certainly the view of many people who lost relatives in the Dublin Monument bombing. Mm. Yeah, the message being, we can bring this war to you, to your door. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned uh, uh, informants and agents, and obviously these kind of people are uh, central to the whole thesis here of collusion. Um, but there's another aspect to it that uh, has that occurred to me, which and I'm thinking specifically here of the spate of um, kind of tit for tat killings uh, and massacres that happened uh, during the mid 1970s. Uh, specifically, for example, the Miami Show Band uh, murder, where a, a group of um, musicians, effectively Catholic national musicians, were were gone. Well, down. a mixed group. The dub, the uh, Miami Show Band, which was then the most popular show band in Ireland were mixed. At right. least two of the members of the band were, were Protestant. Right. 
And then the response to that was a, that the Kings Mill massacre were a well, group what of... Happened, yes, I mean, what happened was that you had a ratcheting up of the, the, the murders. You had, towards the end of 1975, there was an attack on Donnelly's Bar in Silverbridge, three dead there. The same day, there was an attack in a, in a bar just across the border in Dundalk, two dead. So you had five dead on that one day, the 19th, just before Christmas, 1975. And then you had the Christmas break, and almost immediately in the new year started with the murders of the Reeve and the O'Dowd families. That was three members of the Reeve family, three members of the O'Dowd family, separately were, were, were shot dead on, on the same day, the 4th of January. So you had the body count was ratcheting and ratcheting up. And then um, you had the IRA taking retaliation by going in and killing 10 Protestant workmen at King's Mills. Uh, it was a horrific case. But in the background, one wonders if somebody somewhere hadn't decided that it was time to take the gloves off and get stuck in, mm-hmm. and if there was a massive, massive body count like that, uh, that it would result in, a, a, in promote, prompting civil war, in mm-hmm. which case um, all, all bets were off and the British Army could go in um, and it would become a, a full-scale outright war um, <laughs> with no pretense of human rights um, or the law being upheld. Mm-hmm. And there may, there very well may have been those behind the scenes in London who thought that that was the best way to end this conflict, was yeah, to get it over and done with and get right. it all out in the open and have an outright uh, civil war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those allegations have been made that in, in this second uh, response killing in, that you just mentioned in Kim, Kingsmill, Kingsmill, where a, a group of Protestant workers were supposedly killed by the IRA, there has been allegations that uh, that the person who... Uh, it was, it's been said that this was a kind of rogue faction of the IRA and that it wasn't sanctioned by the IRA to kill these people and that the person, one of the people involved in it who, who came up with the idea was may well have been... Uh, effectively a state, a British state agent. There may have been agents on both sides. Right. There may have been agents on both sides, uh, you know, trying to promote uh, outright civil conflict. Uh-huh. The, 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 the ten Protestant workmen who were killed at King's Mills had the absolute same right to the truth as do the 120 uh, people, the families who lost loved ones in the series of murders outlined in Leith and Allies. They have absolutely the same right, and they are already themselves alleging collusion in those murders, and they have an absolute right to get as much as possible of the truth about that out into the open. Mm-hmm. Be they Protestant, Catholic, nationalist, or unionist, the Patrick Conservative believes that every single person who lost a loved one during the conflict has precisely the same right to the truth as everybody else. And the King's Mills families have just that same right. Mm. There's a problem there in, in the sense, though, that I mean, there's a lot of motivation among the nationalist Catholic community uh, to expose this kind of collusion uh, because they're... It's harder. It's harder for Protestant people to do it. Right. Because if they allege collusion, what they're talking about, the Protestant people or Unionist people, call them what you will, have always believed that the security forces were there to act in their best interests. Yes. I don't think Catholics ever had that illusion so it's very, very hard for them to make allegations against the security forces, many of, many of them 
have family who, who served in the UDR and the IUC, and um, therefore it's even harder for them to make accusations against the security forces that they genuinely, honestly believe, and still many of them still do believe, were there to protect their own interests. And to make those allegations is very hard for them, but they have made those allegations. The King's Mills families have alleged that there was collusion in their loved ones' murders, and they have an absolute right to that truth. And, and in addition, fair play to them. It takes a lot of yeah, courage to speak it, out against your own community yeah, exactly. and against your own community's um, long-held beliefs and long-held support for the security services and to accuse those same security services now of colluding with others in your loved ones' murders. It takes a lot to do that and fair play to them. That's what they've done and they deserve all the support possible. Yeah, I mean... Just speaking about Kingsmill, I mean, it's been said, and I read this in the Pat Finucane uh, Centre's website <coughs> about the Kingsmill massacre and the the idea that um, loyalist paramilitaries came up with an idea to keep that tit for tat kind of cycle going, and that they had planned to uh, uh, launch an attack on a children's school uh, outside Newry in Balik and kill 30 uh, school children and their teacher. Um, and that this may have been actually the brainchild of, again, uh, uh, effectively someone in British military intelligence. But the other yeah, thing... Yeah, it's, it's our belief, anyhow, that this was... Uh, that, that after King's Mills, we, it's not just our belief. We have um, an interview with, a, um, with IUC officer Billy McCaughey, who said that at that point... He was involved, he was one of the IUC officers involved with the loyalists in colluding in these murders, and in some of these murders. And he said at that point, as far as he and his colleagues were concerned, uh, it was gloves off time and it was time to go in hard. And uh, one idea was to murder um, Catholic nuns at a convent in Newry. And another idea was to go to the little uh, primary school at the village of Beliks in South Armagh and to kill 30 children and their, and their school teacher. But when this proposal was put to the UVF leadership in Belfast, they, they already suspected that some of their members um, in South Armagh were being manipulated by British military intelligence. And the UVF leadership vetoed that, and it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But it was being planned. Another aspect of... Uh the British state or uh, agents of the British state uh, shaping and moulding and pushing this conflict in a way that was going to benefit nobody in Northern Ireland is the proxy, the so-called IRA's proxy bombs, where they would uh, force someone uh, to drive their car. They would kidnap their family and hold them at gunpoint and force them to drive a car to a military checkpoint and, and, and uh, detonate a bomb. Um, but there's evidence, again, that this idea... I, th I think it was even there, an article on the Guardian website that this idea was also the brainchild of British intelligence to use these kind of proxy suicide bomber type things. I've seen the same, um, I've seen the same uh, reports as you, but I haven't seen the hard evidence for that. Uh -huh. So I don't feel qualified to, to comment. But all I would say is that having seen the evidence that I have seen in the, uh, in the 120 murders that, that have chronicled the lethal allies, I would put nothing beyond them, nothing. Um, just to go back to the King's Mill uh, families who have alleged collusion, that also touches on what we talked about earlier, which is what motive 
the British state as a whole, and particularly the authorities in Northern Ireland, would have for withholding information. Because right there, you're shattering the myth of the very people you need to support the existing regime. So collusion is such a dirty word all the way around because uh, if the Protestant population of the north of Ireland were to understand and pursue the truth to where it may well, lead them. Yeah, they, might, they would find common cause with the Catholics. Exactly. exactly. That's the worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one reason that we believe that it's so necessary to have an agreed investigation, an agreed historical investigation into the past. One, I mean, obviously, the, the main reason we're campaigning is that we want the truth about the families that we work with, Right. We, we know them, we believe they, they deserve the truth, and we believe they should be given the truth. But a secondary, uh, and almost equally as important, is that we, well, I personally believe that there is the possibility that if both sides in this conflict could understand better what was really going on during the conflict, which is that it wasn't uh, two communities fighting each other, it was two communities being manipulated to a greater or lesser degree by others outside those communities, mm. then there is the possibility for making common cause. And there is the possibility, looking at it with uh, maybe with looking at it the glass half full, there is the possibility for, for, for a greater reconciliation between nationalists and unionists in understanding our shared history and moving forward. Now, I don't, agree, I don't think there'll ever be an agreed narrative as to what happened during the conflict. But if there was a better understanding about how people were being manipulated uh, by forces outside their control or even outside their knowledge, then there is the potential there for much, um, for a greater understanding um, and, and possibly even a reconciliation between those communities. And at the very least, prevent history from repeating itself so soon. Well, one would hope so in Ireland, certainly, although uh, the, 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 the prognosis isn't good looking at, looking at the past and looking at how the same mistakes are repeated over and over again and looking how um, the in the Middle East at the moment uh, Sunni and Shia have been set against each other uh, and um, the mess that has been created in the Middle East by uh, Western intervention, uh, one would wonder if, if, if our governments... Uh, in Europe and North America are ever going to be capable of learning from history. Mm -hmm. They clearly like this strategy. Uh, I'd like to talk about that because the, you mentioned the, from the list of 120 people, only one had the remotest connections to anything re yes. Republican. And that not just that, but the others were not just a random selection of people, you know, working class, etc. Rather, they were people yeah. chosen because they were upward, upwardly mobile. There were people going somewhere. There were people who would surely reinforce uh, the prospects for peace in the north of Ireland. Yeah, um, well, kind of, what, as I say, I think it was totally counterproductive. Well, um, I think by picking on people like that, they were picking on pillars of the community, if you like, or people who just, um, you know, were trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps as a result of educational reforms in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and this was, these, this was a new class of confident, upwardly mobile Catholic, um, who potentially, I suppose, could have, have, uh, could have been a, a, a danger to popular support for armed republicanism, but ended up not being so because 
uh, they could see themselves what was happening in their communities and they knew what was happening and they're not people aren't stupid you know if if they can they can understand they can see who's being targeted mm-hmm. and they can work out for themselves why and it's never a good idea for governments to believe that they can fool people you can't fool people all the time okay that's the perspective from the victim side i want to think about it from the attacker's side because clearly in this case a gang of uh, reactionary people who clearly have no qualms about committing violence behind them there's a strategy that's at work a play where they target a certain profile of person does it does it strike you in what you've seen that that cannot have been decided by loyalist paramilitary forces but that is a strategy from higher up no i think i think it came from higher up and i think it changed as well because during the 1970s in this series of murders as i've said i've described to you the sort of people who were killed it changed in the 1980s. In the 1980s, it became much more targeted on Republican and Sinn Féin political and military activists. It, was, it changed. You know, you could see the pattern changing over the years. And if there's a pattern, it means there's someone drawing a pattern. Uh, and so, yes, I, do, I would agree with you. I, very definitely. I think it was, uh, it was being directed from, from other sources, not just from loyalist paramilitary leadership sources. I think it was being directed uh, by others. Others who, who we don't we still don't know who these people are, and probably never know, will know their names. But we can we can certainly think of who they might be, where they might come from, who they might be in term not in their, not in, not name them, but have a, a rough idea where they where they are, where they were. Mm-hmm. Well, and we don't want to keep you too long uh, from from your from your work or your your activities, but. Um, I just wanted to say that, uh, I mean, I, I really commend you. I think you're a very rare uh, indivi- individual and a, a really a credit to humanity, I think, if that's not too, too high praise, because your book, Lethal Allies, is not just in itself. It, it goes a long way to explaining uh, the, the, the conflict in Northern Ireland, but it's not just limited to that. I think in those pages, people can understand a lot about what's going on in the world, like today. you mentioned already today, in uh, in the Middle East and all of that, when people understand the kind of way that uh, the, the state or big government uh, views these kinds of conflicts, um, that will allow people to, to really to make sense of a lot of the stuff in the world that today people are just scratching their heads over and thinking it's all just madness, you know. So yeah. it's a very, very valuable book, and I well, think everybody should much, have it. I would like to point out that fact that without... I'd like to... I'd like to name check one person, and that is my colleague here at the PFC in Armagh, and that is Alan Brecknell, whose father was killed at Donnelly's Bar in Silverbridge in uh, December 1975, and who, when he discovered that there may have been collusion in his father's murder, then quit his job and spent 10 years working voluntarily with the PFC, digging into his own father's murder, and then when he discovered there were other linked murders, investigating them as well. Without his efforts, none of this would ever have happened. And another person that I can't name check, I'd like to, but I can't, is an officer in the historical inquiries team who was, had a fair amount of pressure put on him to tone down his reports and to withhold stuff from his evidence from his reports on which we based the book. And he, without him as well, none of this would ever have come to light. It was a series of happy coincidences there was um, Alan and his work. There was the PFC waiting there with, uh, with the experience of, uh, of researching this kind of, of case previously. 
Um, then there was the HET, and then there was the Barron report uh, into the Dublin non-home bombings, and then finally, the final piece in the jigsaw was myself coming along and writing it all up in a book. Mm -hmm. So if any of those pieces hadn't been there, then the whole chain would have fallen. Um, as it was, this book is, as far as we know, unique. And let us hope that it doesn't remain unique. Let us hope that more information, more evidence comes out so that we can all understand what we've been through and truly come to terms with the nature of the conflict that we all endure. Very well said, absolutely. And I think I'm just going to, I want to encourage all of our listeners to, to, to buy this book to not only inform themselves of very important information, but also to support the kind of work that you and uh, uh, others at the Pat Finucane Centre are doing, uh, because you need to keep, keep doing this work. I mean, uh, and I know there's probably a lot, of, lot more work to do. Yes, there is, and we have hopes uh, that there will be, um, we're in, in very, very early stages of discussion with an independent television company to produce a full-length TV documentary on the whole process. Brilliant. So watch this space. We ain't finished yet. Excellent. Brilliant. Thanks, Anne. Okay, Anne, thanks a million for, for coming okay. and talking to us today. Uh, so, yeah, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, both of you. Well, there you have it, folks. British government death squads in the name of national security. 30 years after the fact, it's now finally established. Although, as Anne explained, it's just another book. It's not really because it's essentially the the synthesis of the closest the North of Ireland has, ha has had to a truth commission. Um, it's a shame. It's just the way things go. It's part of history. It's like this infamous quote from... What, uh, who may have been from Karl Rove when he said to a journalist in 2004, listen, you don't get it to we create reality and all of you are left to study it judiciously as you will. But by the time, you know, you establish the facts, it's we've moved on and you're now in a new reality. Nevertheless, uh, that is not to take away from the value of doing this for those who do linger for the truth, this kind of service is essential. There are people of all backgrounds in the north of Ireland and their friends and relatives there and all over the world. So uh, <clears throat> a big, big thank you to Anne. Yeah, absolutely. She's, um, like I said there, she's very... She's a very rare individual when you think about it. Of all the people involved in that conflict in Northern Ireland and in other conflicts around the world who um, knew what was happening, knew the truth, uh, but uh, but didn't, you know, try to expose it or just turned away. Um, she, she's one that didn't, and there are very few people who don't. Um, so she's a real credit to... Uh, well, like I said, there's just a credit to humanity because there isn't much humanity going around on the planet these days. And to see someone um, take that kind of an interest in uh, in the truth, uh, primarily motivated by the suffering, I think uh, she would probably admit herself by the suffering of the of the victims. Uh, that was her motivation. And um, like I said, most people these days don't really uh, care much about other people's suffering. So that's why you don't find too many people like Anne. Yeah, just a quick reminder. Also, the specifically covers uh, 120 murders in the mid-70s, so it's over a specific period. This is just a snapshot of the total number of people killed, which is about what, Joe? Well, there's over, officially there's over 3,000 
killed um, over three decades. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there's probably, in terms of the people that that she documents, there's at least uh, there's another uh, from the nationalist community Catholics. There's another probably one thousand maybe um, or more people. Uh, of course, that includes uh, active members of the IRA, etc. Because the total is three thousand. She has one hundred and twenty, which is very small. Uh, officially, I think the British government says a, a thousand soldiers, British soldiers, were killed. But that includes active members of this UDR regiment, which was a regiment that the British government set up specifically uh, to for Northern Ireland for the conflict in Northern Ireland, um, and it. Uh, it recruited lots of basically death squad types into that regiment to give them a, a veneer of legitimacy. Um, so between those, you know, there are English soldiers effectively who came over. I don't know, there's probably several hundred of them um, were killed. Um, and then you had another several hundred uh, of local uh kind of death squad types from Northern Ireland who were from the Protestant community, they were inducted into the UDR and they were killed. And then um, amongst the IRA and, and Catholic civilians, you had uh, you have over a thousand um, dead. And she, like I said, she recounts 120 civilians. It's probably about another, probably another three, four hundred civilians, or at least, mm-hmm. that she could, uh, who weren't involved at all were killed so over 500 certainly at, at least um, yeah now as Dan explained they're working with the best documentation they can find which is completely understandable they want to build a case for it um, in the meantime other revelations have since um, they haven't eclipsed this book but they've come out that are a separate um you can get some updates on these things if you go to the Pat Finucane website, but uh, they've also been all over the news. Um, I'm thinking specifically of an episode in the 1980s. Um, there have been BBC and RT documentaries about this. This was a force called the Military Reaction Group or Force. Not military Reaction Force, that was one of their names, yeah. Um, this was even more straight up where... These weren't loyalists or, or local UDR people mixing with military intelligence. They were out and out British soldiers or British intelligence who would go around plain clothes, driving in a car with a machine gun, and just shoot down people at random. Catholic, Protestant, didn't matter. Um, this went on for some years in the 1980s. 1970s and 80s. 70s also, okay. But it... Um I mean, just to, just to speak to what I was saying earlier, which was that this, uh, if you just if you were to read this book or if you were to study this uh, situation in Northern Ireland, it really does explain a lot of what's going on in the world because the same template, Today, yeah. the same template has been used over and over again. Certainly, what they did in Northern Ireland was not the first uh, time that they'd used this strategy of uh, uh, provoking conflict and fighting the war on both sides. Essentially, um, they did it. Uh, the British did it in the service of empire for many times uh, previously. I mean, you could cite uh, places like Kenya or um, Malaysia or 
or Cyprus even, um, where the same kind of tactics were used against a local population who basically wanted equal rights and uh, democracy and justice. Uh, and they were being denied that by the occupying British uh, forces and British British government. And in response to people demanding equal rights and justice, essentially, uh, the response of the British government has been uh, always to uh, provoke uh, a war between two groups within that country. Sometimes they bring uh, groups into the country to play the part of the opposing side, but they try and create a, a civil war effectively. This is when people in the country who are being abused or mistreated by the occupying government, when they take up arms or in some way uh, try to um, militarily resist uh, that kind of injustice, the response of the British government is to give them a war, but not necessarily overtly, not overtly involving the British government, but with some kind of proxy force or some kind of uh, other element that they arm and train and use to fight against this uh, this uprising, as they might call it, or these insurgents, mm. as they might call it. So you can just apply that kind of strategy, for example, to many places in the Middle East. Um, you can even apply it to the, the, the likes of ISIS, for example, you know, uh, although that's on a much uh, broader scale. But the value of, <clears throat> I think the value of, the thing that makes the situation in Northern Ireland stand out and the the, the information, uh, well, the, the information that is available and the data, the hard data, the hard facts that have, uh, are available about what really happened in Northern Ireland make it kind of unique in the sense that uh, there isn't, uh, many, there aren't many other places around the world where that kind of hard data on the true nature of a so-called conflict or a terrorist organization that a Western government was fighting against, that the true nature of what was really going on there has been exposed to the extent okay. it has in Northern Ireland. And also it's unique in the sense that it's in the West. This happened in the West. No other, uh, in, in, I mean, in modern history, there's no other example of uh a Western government using that kind of a strategy against, quote-unquote, its own people in, in, in a Western country. Uh, they do it with much more freedom and abandon uh, in faraway places where people think it's all crazy and, and that kind of thing happens all the time anyway. The only reason people think that it happens all the time in those strange places in the Middle East and Africa and stuff is because the uh, Western governments have been doing it for so long. That's why they think uh, it happens just as a matter of course there. Uh, because uh, it's been happening for so long and because no one uh, exposes the fact, or it hasn't been uh, so well exposed, the fact that um, that this is effectively a strategy of uh, empires or of uh, neo-colonialism in, in, in different places around the world. So uh, it's a fairly safe thing to do to take the data available from Northern Ireland and just uh, transplant it onto different places around the world where the Western governments are supposedly uh, fighting terrorism. Uh, when you can't understand uh, what's really going on in those places where the war on terror is happening, just use the data from Northern Ireland and, and very quickly you will understand uh, what's really going on. Absolutely. Especially um, for a recent example, the civil war in Iraq. Uh, yeah, that just came about just after an invasion and occupation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good example because um, I mean, back in 2006, I think it was, there were two members of the British military. Uh, there were British uh, paratroopers officially, or SAS, Special Air Service, basically like the, um, the equivalent of the uh, Navy SEALs or something in, in America. These are the British SAS Special Forces type thing. They were caught in 2005 driving around... Uh, it wasn't Basra. Basra, yes. Driving around Basra, which is a historical kind of um, center for British uh, occupation of Iraq because the British occupied Basra way back in the 1920s. So when the new occupation happened in 2003, the British were given Basra, saying, hey, you guys know this place. You were here uh, 80 years ago. Or, so, um, And these guys were caught driving around in a car uh, with loaded with weapons and a bomb in the trunk of the car. And they were dressed in supposedly traditional Arab garb. They had like white uh, kind of dish dashes on their head. And, you know, they looked like, supposedly looked like like Muslims. They, and they were driving around. They were stopped by a police, uh, uh, a detachment of Iraqi police. And they were arrested when they saw that. In fact, one of them shot at, a, one of them shot when they were stopped. One of them shot at the Iraqis. And I think maybe shot at an Iraqi police officer. They were arrested uh, and taken into jail. And uh, And the question is then, why were they driving around uh, in Arab garb, posing as Muslims or Iraqis, with a bomb in the back of their car and shooting at police when they were stopped? Uh, when they were put in prison by the Iraqis, uh, the British immediately, within a few hours, sent in a tank, knocked down the prison wall and rescued them and took them away, and nothing else was ever heard from them. Although the Iraqis released a, a, a photograph of the two of them sitting on the ground, looking... Uh, rather put out by the fact that they had been exposed in this way. But that's a perfect example of the kind of thing, not only of the, of the kind of thing that they were, the British were doing in Northern Ireland for 30 years, um, but also that they were obviously still doing it, and this was a strategy in Iraq, and it's just one small snapshot of what, of probably a very wide-ranging campaign or wide-ranging strategy that was being employed in Iraq, uh, right more or less from the get-go in, in 2003, <clears throat> by the British and by the Americans as well, because the Americans have a, a long history of doing exactly the same thing. In fact, they more than likely got this strategy or learned this strategy from the British, um, you know, at some point in the in the 20th century or the 20th century maybe. Uh, so this is what was going on in Iraq, across Iraq. So anytime you heard of a, a a bomb, a car bomb exploding on a market in Iraq, you probably heard that. Probably heard that probably hundreds of times mm -hmm. at this point, uh, that killed 40, 50, 60 people, uh, there was a good chance uh, that this was either British operatives uh, themselves who had planted the bomb there, uh, or it was uh, some other group. And it's very easy in that kind of a situation where you've invaded an occupied country and there's a war going on to recruit uh, hired guns, basically, from the local population who will do anything for, for money, uh, but are effectively, in that case, British agents. Uh, people like that doing similar things, either dropping, bo uh, planting bombs places in places outside uh, markets to kill civilians, or just going and shooting, uh, you know, shooting a lot of people and a gun attack and all sorts of torture. Where, you know, there's all sorts of horrible stories about Iraq where people, there was a spate of killings where people had. Uh, you know, their heads chopped off and um, had been tortured in horrible ways, etc. Most of that was the work of, uh, in one way or another, the work of the occupying British and American forces. And their goal was to create the appearance and to a certain extent the reality of a civil war uh, so that they could justify uh, their continued occupation. They're there as peacekeepers, right, to 
keep the crazy Iraqis uh, from killing each other. Um, and in fact, if you begin a strategy like that and implement a strategy like that, you can see how eventually it would lead to a civil war. You could effectively provoke a civil war if you kill enough people from two sides in a community that previously weren't that divided necessarily, but you've made a division by going and killing a bunch of one side, a bunch of people from one community, uh, be it religious or ethnic or whatever, and then and making it seem like it was people from the other community that did it. You do that enough times, eventually people will start to believe that that's what's actually going on, and they will take up arms themselves and start killing the people that uh, they think have been killing them, when in fact very few people suspect Mm. that uh, a wonderful bestower of freedom and democracy like the British government or the American government would ever do such a horrible thing. Well, they've done it all the time. You know, people really need to grow up. Uh, this is my main gripe about everybody in the West. Uh, it's not that they're stupid or ignorant or anything like that, uh, or they have ridiculous political opinions or they're... You know, I don't have a problem necessarily with anything anybody says, any pro-Western government... Uh, you know, kind of zealot from the West. My problem, I don't have any problem with anything they necessarily say. It's just that everything they say is hopelessly naive and obviously naive. I just want them to grow up and say, listen, you, you're a big boy or a big girl now. You're an adult, right? You live in, in a world where people, uh, a lot of people will do uh, a lot of horrible things to get what they want. You know, I mean, you understand that there are some nasty people around and uh, that people... And they'll look at you and say, yeah, ISIS. Right. But allow for the fact that uh, your government will do the same, you know, um, because they have done, because the evidence is there. And the only thing that stops them from believing that evidence is the fact that <clears throat> is this childish naivety or childish wish to believe that, uh, no, my government slash father figure would never do that, you know. Well, get over, you know, this need to see your government or your leaders, or whatever, as some kind of benevolent father figures who will protect you and stuff. You're, you're an adult. You should be able to take care of yourself and look at the world uh, objectively and assign what you know of human nature <clears throat> and even beyond human nature to, you know, uh, issues like uh, psychopathy, etc. Assign that to certain situations in a mature, adult, and objective way, without being, uh, without you know, falling apart at the thought that, you know, your team might not be such a great team after all. I mean, it's really just pathetic, you know. I mean, that's my main problem. I'd love to talk to some people like that on TV or something and just, I would just that's what I would say. I would just call them hopelessly childish and naive and I would just keep repeating it, you know. I can imagine you in a TV debate, Joe. <laughs> um, they wouldn't let me on. Probably not. Get kicked off. I get tased. No, they just go to uh, advertisements, uh, and then you wouldn't be there when they come back. Yeah, well said, Joe. Um, I part of my growing up was to get out of the uh, the what do you call it? The, the, the in our, in terms of Irish affairs. People like us in the Republic are brought up to believe that the IRA were the fount of all evil and everything stems from that. Mm. I mean, it's it's disgusting how successive Irish governments 
have gone along with this. I mean, yeah, I've suggested this well because they believed the IRA was the root of the problem. Well, it was. I mean, they didn't believe that the IRA was the root of the problem in the sense that <clears throat> the IRA was uh, the evil doer in this. The IRA, uh, on balance, was the was the force for good. You know, um, it had justice and righteousness on its side. That's there's no question about that. I don't. I mean, I, 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 there's no <clears throat> there's no possibility for anyone <clears throat> to dispute that fact on the very fundamentals of morality and justice. And righteousness, you know, I can take you back to the Bible, whatever. Uh, you know, I can find the, the justification. I mean, that's not a good thing to say. Justification for what the IRA did in the Bible. I'm saying you can find justification for anything in the Bible. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that there's no question that uh, the genesis of the IRA was uh, is found in a fight against clear, obvious, objective injustice that was not being redressed. The authorities that were supposed to redress it, they in fact ignored it. Uh, and told you to f off and uh, just suck it up, you know. So people who are suffering and being abused physically, uh, they were told to just deal with it. In that situation, no one can fault anyone from taking action, physical action, to defend themselves to stop that kind of injustice. And that's the situation. That's the origin, the essence of uh, of where the IRA came from in the early, in the late 1960s. Let's say when they reformed or whatever you want to call it. Um, the problem, the, the Irish government throughout this this period of uh, of the troubles of the conflict, uh, it didn't like the IRA because the Irish government is more or less the same in Ireland has been from mostly from the from the Irish independence in 1922, uh, where you had a kind of like a two party system. Effectively, it's soon evolved into a two party system like you have in most other Western countries. You know, uh, blue and red green and yellow, whatever you want, you know, two different colours, but more or less the same. And those people establish themselves in power and it just flips back every few years between <clears throat> each one. So they were the authorities in Ireland throughout this conflict and they saw that any support in the Irish Republic for Irish nationalism would mean the end of their uh, hold and reign of, of, of power every every few years where they switch, switch uh, positions. Uh, because they didn't really... Uh, they didn't, their ticket or their, uh, uh, the thing that they had, um, that their ethos essentially wasn't based in Irish nationalism, it was, it was based in the Irish free state uh, without Northern Ireland. And uh, the political party of the IRA, Sinn Féin, if, it, if there was a, an upswell in nationalism on the basis of the Irish government allowing uh, the crimes of the British against the Irish in the north of Ireland uh, to, to become uh, widely known, uh, then those people in power would lose their positions uh, to the the Republican Nationalist Party of Sinn Féin, for example. So it was effectively they sided with the British to maintain their positions in power, and they've always been down on uh, Irish nationalism uh, for that reason, because that's not their ticket, basically. Uh, they're, they're, Sinn Féin and other Irish Republican parties or nationalist parties already had staked out that ground uh, and they would uh, be the parties that the people would go to and vote for and vote into power if an, uh, uh, an upswell of, uh, of nationalism overtook the Irish population. So the Irish government, the Irish authorities essentially uh, suppressed 
Irish nationalism, not just in terms of support of the people of Ireland for the IRA by exposing what the British were doing and the historical and, and modern-day injustices, but they also were, uh, clamped down on all sorts of Irish cultural uh, aspects, you know, and um, they suppressed the the promotion of the Irish language and uh, and even um, Irish culture in other other ways because it's associated with you know a sense of identity or sense of nationalism. Oh yeah, every Irishman knows there are certain areas you don't even speak about, lest you be accused of being a nationalist. I mean, uh, fairly recent history, the Great Famine in quotes, mm, yeah, being one. Clear example. Yeah, one example. I mean, I mean, look at what the Jews do with their Holocaust. You know, six million Jews. Oh, uh, they get great leverage well, out of it. And all the of, Irish automatically self-censor themselves. The yeah, period. well, it's ridiculous, you know, because I mean, if if the Irish were just if the Irish government was to just take a, a leaf out of the uh, out of the, the Jewish book there and say, look, you can pay with this. I mean, you got to show this in people's faces so that they remember, and you get all sorts of. Could cut all sorts of slack on the international stage when you're when you're when you're a victim of a, of a, of a historical uh, aggression in that way or a, a genocide, um, but yeah, they didn't didn't go with it because I think it's associated with um, an anti-British sentiment, and it's not just for their own positions of power. The Irish government did that, but it's also the ties they have, the economic ties that they have with the UK. Uh, you know, the Republic was very much. Uh, uh, seen as a little kind of West Britain to a large extent, certainly from the point of view of uh, the Dublin uh, centre of, of power and government stuff and the way that they, their worldview is very much West Brit. They're just Western British people, you know, off off the coast. They were an offshore Ireland, island, you know. Uh, that's the way they kind of saw themselves, uh, you know, in terms of their economic and political ties with, with the British. And the British had a lot of control. I mean, they had occupied more or less for 800 years uh, Ireland, so the, their tentacles had spread throughout the entire fabric of society um, in terms of, particularly in terms of e- economics. I so call it 800 years now. Uh, yeah. Or sorry, 900. I don't distinguish. Yeah. I think the Dublin government colluded with what happened in the north of Ireland. They did that for power and they did that for Britain. There was collusion with the British state. Yeah, or at least, uh, you know, zipping their lips on things, you know, and saying nothing. I'm you not know. sure. It was a little bit more, well, like, I did like have I've mentioned, that in, in Anne's book, there's, I mean, they buried the investigation into the Dublin yeah. bombings. And then they went overboard in prostrating themselves to assist uh, the British in the north in cracking down harder against nationalists. Yeah, but there's also leverage the British had over the Irish government uh, in that respect. I mean, they had mainly, I think, primarily uh, economic economic links. Ireland depends quite largely. It certainly did then before the whole monetary union and all that kind of stuff with the EU depended largely uh, or a lot to a large extent on the British uh, for in terms of their economy and all sorts of perks in different ways. There's a lot of connections between British and Irish politicians, etc. So the British could say, well, listen, if you don't toe the line on this one and back us in, ter- in, in allowing us to uh, uh, kill and murder uh-huh. your own citizens. I don't think they that. I don't think they needed to. No, but the implication was there, if you don't know sure. the background. I mean, sure. Anybody who's smart enough would have known you don't rock that boat because it's trouble, you know, and the British have a lot of power. I mean, they could have a coup. People in positions of power, any government yeah. at any time during the troubles, during the conflict in Northern Ireland, if any Irish government had decided to buck the system, 
uh, they would probably very quickly find themselves out of power, involved in all sorts of uh, maybe scandals or, you know, photographs of politicians would be published in the press, you know, doing all sorts of different things. I mean, that's the kind of leverage the British use in the same way the Americans. That's the essence of empire, you know, when, you've, yeah. when you have had an empire and your, your goal is to dominate as much of the world as possible, you get into all sorts, you get very well versed in all kinds of dirty tricks and uh, the Irish government was in no position to stand up to that and they knew it. So if they didn't know that they had to toe the line all the way through the conflict in Northern Ireland, the British line, then they certainly, if it, if it was necessary, they were made aware of the fact that they had to and why. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I mean, being from the North, I mean, people... In the South, uh, being a Catholic from the North, people in the South weren't very, you know... Sympathetic. Uh, well, people from the North didn't view the people in the South as being very sympathetic. It wasn't really their fault. They were propagandized against and stuff, but, I mean, a lot of them would, would have been very... Would have been turned. It was amazing to see it. To, uh, to me, it was amazing to see it during those years uh, when I would go down to the South to see how people that I would... Uh, talk to even family members, cousins, etc., uh, would be very negative about the IRA, you know, and about the conflict in the North and wanting, just wanting nothing, nothing to do with it, you know. It was amazing uh, to see that real-time influence that the powers that be or the government in Ireland had on the population, how they could shape public perception, you know, against uh, logic, really, you know, um, because the natural... Against their, not their own natural sympathies. Well, their own natural sympathies should have been with with their fellow countrymen and women uh, just, just you know, 60 miles away type thing, you know. But they were turned against them uh, through all sorts of black propaganda in the press and really trying to play up by the British and by the Irish government playing up just how horrible the evil IRA were in planting this bomb in such and such a place and killing these people. One was probably, in most cases, it was the British, you know. Uh, and it's amazing because um, it's it's one thing that never nobody nobody has ever answered in terms of the logic of it. Uh, how uh, an arguably or uh, um, an armed group, a group of uh, people who get together and are able to wage uh, a war against an occupying force. Uh, now those kind of people have to be, or by definition, are intelligent people to be able to wage that kind of a war against a state, the state forces, the full might in many cases, state forces able to continue a war against them. They by definition have to be um, quite intelligent and well aware of strategy and be able to change their strategy and, and, and think about what the best strategy is uh, and to weigh up all of the different considerations. But apparently on many occasions, those same very intelligent, by definition very intelligent people who are very good strategists, uh, would now and again decide to just, you know, kill a bunch of innocent civilians. You know, uh, British <coughs> civilians, for example, plant a bomb in England and kill just innocent bystanders and not even try and target any military objective. It's amazing how they would decide to do that as part of their strategy and not be aware that what would happen was exactly what happened every time the IRA supposedly did that, which was that there was a massive uh, public backlash against them. They even lost support among their own population on which they on which they depended for that support to actually survive. Uh, they lost support amongst their own population, supposedly. Uh, and, uh, and it allowed the, the British government to, you know... Um, 
to, to impose extremely harsh measures against them and to go out and hunt them even more, uh, you know, more, more actively. Um, so I can understand why they might, I don't, I can't even understand, I'll just, but I'll give this where I can understand why they might do it once, but as soon as you see the result of that, you'd never do it again. Mm-hmm. But supposedly they did it repeatedly. Of course, on several occasions, there's evidence now that it, as we just talked about, uh, there's evidence that the British were behind many of these bombings. And we talked about Iraq, about these two guys in a car uh, dressed up as Arabs, you know. Well, the single biggest IRA bomb, in quotes, was the one that ended the whole whole thing, which is the Oma bombing. Right, well, that wasn't even the IRA, that was meant to be the... No, yes, they were meant to be in peace talks now, so it was the real IRA uh, splinter group. Right. Um, I've, I, if you haven't listened to it already, you should listen to our, our show last month with Chris Fogarty. He he was kind of connected to that indirectly, um, because he's in, he was in Chicago and he ran into some dodgy characters there who turned up in the north of Ireland and were were involved with setting up the Oma bombing. Mm-hmm. There was an under undercover FBI guy called Rupert and an actual FBI agent probably Rupert's handle, handler, called Buckley, I think. Um, that's just an incredible story. But it, it, it fits a pattern, you know. Uh, that the, I mean, <laughs> when the worst atrocities were actually British intelligence jobs, you know, that tells you all you need to know, really, about the entire conflict. Yep. So, I just lament the day that uh, there was one or two bombs that the that the IRA planted in England. Uh, I'm pretty sure, because, I mean, when you start down this road, you have to question all of them, you know. Uh, did the IRA <laughs> do anything type thing, you know, when, when you have a, a, the forces of a, of a major world uh, nation, the state forces, uh, fighting the war on your side, basically, on your behalf, effectively, you know, you have to wonder about, but did we really do that or was that somebody else, you know? But there was one event where in 1982, I think, there was a Brighton, the Tory party, the Conservative Party conference was in Brighton that year and uh, Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet were holed up in uh, in a hotel in Brighton and the IRA planted a bomb in it with express desire to uh, send Maggie back to wherever she came from and... Um, she was in the toilet at the time, and she survived. God, that's the times like that we wonder, you know, just is is God even against us? You know, <sighs> is fate and providence against us as well? Uh, was it supposed to be a larger bomb or something? No, it was, it was targeted against her. Well, her and the Conservative Party cabinet at the time. Okay, who were, who imagine were how many children would have been saved yeah. after what we now know was going on in the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of more children might have been uh, not been abused, and um, certainly. Thing is, though, what people in the IRA learned. I mean, they they still get accused of being traitors and selling out to the Brits. But what they learned was that after three decades of this, there there was no way out of the labyrinth. The British had this set up in such a way that. It was impossible to fight your way out of it. It's set up to encourage you to keep fighting. Exactly. How do you win against an enemy who wants to keep fighting? 
And when you and show as limited resources that, compared to you, yeah. And when you show signs that you want to, to to call a truce, they say no. I want you to keep fighting, and if you don't keep fighting, I'm going to go and carry out attacks in your name to make it look like you want to keep fighting. But at the same time, um, as we as you mentioned, Chris Fogarty uh, from two weeks two weeks ago was it last? I think it was early July, about a month ago. Look it up. Good uh, show. Uh, Chris Fogarty, uh, an Irish American uh, historian, has written on the on the Irish Holocaust. Uh, caused by the British, um, he gave a very interesting explanation of, as to why the peace process started in about in the late nineties um, was because the British government's friends in Washington told them in advance of a planned uh, upcoming really big show in Iraq. And Afghanistan, and that they would need uh, British military resources uh, freed up for that, and that they didn't want to have that kind of a conflict ongoing in Northern Ireland uh, that involved the British military, uh, because it would be a distraction uh, in a certain sense from that, and would take away resources from their planned upcoming uh, big show in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2003, and this was in the late 1998, they were being told this. Um, so, well, I think the suggestion from Fogarty was that it dates a little bit earlier that they initiated the peace process and put pressure on the British government just yeah. to wrap things up. Yeah, exactly. So they were already looking a decade before. They wanted to make sure that the British were yeah, well, the firmly process, on side. Yeah, the peace process began in 95. Uh, effectively, it started, the murmuring started, the uh, yeah. first ceasefire was in 95. So it was probably around 95. So yeah, we're talking about eight years at least previous to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, they were planning an invasion of Iraq and wanted the British military freed up from its Northern Ireland uh, quagmire, quote-unquote. So... Uh, that just what the point there is is that the British government could have at any time initiated yeah. and carried through a peace process that it didn't have to go on for thirty years, uh, but they wanted it to go on for thirty years because, well, one of the major things of any uh, armed conflict, one of the major uh, motivators, motivations for any armed conflict, is uh, on the part of Western governments, is to give your military bit of exercise, a bit of real-time exercise, because think about it, if you've got a big military and it's peace, it's peacetime, what do you do? It's not so good, you know, I mean, you've got military budgets to justify, uh, but how do you justify your military budget when all of your troops are in the barracks and you're not, you're not shooting any bullets or rockets or missiles? I mean, you need war to justify military budgets and to funnel large quantities of public taxpayers' money to military contractors to big corporations, uh, you know, to sell you the weapons that you need to use so that you can buy more and get more money from the taxpayer to buy more bullets to kill more people in other places around the world. And also, obviously, politicians will lobby for this because very often they have friends or when they leave office, they're going directly to the board, <clears throat> the board of that uh, military contractor that they are... <laughs> That they are generating income from income for creating the uh, rationale for war. Yeah. So it, I think that's the biggest biggest thing you can point to: greed, money. But 
with the British elite, there's something else. I suspect that they actually enjoy killing people. And when this was put to them, listen, you'll be able to do what you're doing in Ireland, but on a whole other scale, that was just too good to turn down. Yeah. Because, I mean, look what's come since. Back then, you had to have a counter gang, a pseudo gang, as their general Kitson framed it, mm-hmm. to use against a particular target population. But with the war on terror, it's open season. It's a war on terror globally. So you can use it on any population. It's like mm-hmm. <laughs> the market just opened right up. Yeah. So I, I can imagine the British League were like, very good, very good, yes. The British were like, say no more. I, I, this no sounds more. extreme. But I, you cannot escape the conclusion, looking back at history, that um, the British elite um, love war. They love killing people, and they love doing it in savage ways. They, they, The only way you can explain why they do it over and over again, it's, it's uh, sadistic. Yeah. It's a destructive principle that they they base their entire world view on, you know. Um, and it's because that, I think, well, obviously we're talking here about a psychopathic uh, mind, effectively, that just is wired in a certain way that uh, its primary motivation and prime directive is greed and, and the enjoyment in a strange way of, of the suffering of other people. Uh, if you can mix the two together, which they usually do, then that's the best case scenario for, for psychopaths in positions of power where you get to make people suffer and profit from that suffering. Yeah. And fool everyone in, in the process. And Yes, of course. Tell everybody that what... That <laughs> tell they, everybody that that process of making people suffer for no good reason other than to profit from their, from their death and suffering, tell them it's the exact opposite. Freedom, democracy... Compassion. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I was thinking there's there's additionally a strong element of mockery in the like you think of the absurd um, scenarios given in the media post nine eleven. First of all, Bin Laden in a cave. Then uh, more recently, Al Baghdadi, or <laughs> the story we saw uh, earlier this week where the Taliban. Yeah, Joe, you wrote about it. Tell us what happened there. The, Tal- the Taliban, uh, uh, Mullah Omar, you probably saw pictures of him. Anybody who's, who's been keeping up with things over the past 10 or 15 years will recognize this guy. There's only one picture of him. He's missing one eye. He, I think he probably has a hook for a hand and a parrot on his shoulder. Well, okay, I'm joking a little bit, but he only has one eye. And uh, he's a dastardly looking figure in this kind of a grainy photograph of him. Nobody really knows if he actually exists, but he was supposedly the leader of the Taliban that was fighting against the Americans when they first arrived. So he's been, he's appeared here and there over the past 10 or 15 years, supposedly in, in news reports. Uh, he's been killed a few times. Uh, lots of things have been attributed to him, but he's never seen and he certainly hasn't been interviewed by anybody. But this is uh, the kind of Taliban-y version of Osama bin Laden, effectively. But he's even more obscure. And uh, so just recently, um, the Western press announced that he had died, and they got this information from the uh, Kabul or Afghanistan government. Um, So what the Taliban, whoever they are, uh, supposedly it was rushed to elect a new leader, 
the problem was that the information was that the their leader, this guy Mullah Omar, Mullah Omar, had um, had died two years ago. So we're meant to believe that the Taliban uh, were were not aware that their leader was dead for two years and had to hear it from the U.S.-backed Kabul government. At which point they ran to elect a new leader because, of course, you know you can't operate without a leader, right? <laughs> But apparently they had been for two years completely unaware of the fact that he was dead. Um, so it just point to me, it was just like a, another example of the complete farce that uh, is Western reporting or the Western narrative on Iraq, yeah. Afghanistan, the Middle East. Everything you hear about what's going on there is well, it, pretty much fabricated. It's, yeah, it's, most it's, of it is made up. It's made up. It's intelligence people just writing stuff into writing a script. They're either writing the article because they are journalists in their day job, or or they get the they leak the information to the journalists. But they're literally making stuff up as they go along, and they, I'm sure they get a great great old kick out of it. Um, but but just you're pathetic. You really are just pathetic. You're the scum of the earth, and uh, yeah, damn you all to hell. <laughs> Exactly. There's another, I want to give a shout out to another guy in this post, war, post what? Post World War II? Jesus, no. Post 9-11 war on terror. British people will know this guy. Um, he was your dedicated bogeyman from 9-11 onwards for, for, for about a decade. Again, one eye, patch. No hands. He had two hooks on each on each hand. Wore this dark grey robe, scraggly beard. Absolute. He looked like a freak. He had to spend but, an, he had to spend like hours in makeup every morning before he had to uh, appear in the press. You know, because he had to look the part. <laughs> I can't remember his name. It escapes me right now. But he was the preacher, imam, whatever, at uh, some mosque in London. And every time there was a threat or a plot foiled or some blah blah they, they'd use the opportunity the British press to put his picture up next to it with him cackling with glee at, yeah. the, at the coming doom of whatever was supposed to happen Abu Hamza's name Abu Hamza uh, the, the Americans at some point decided they wanted him extradited on charges related to specific terror attack they get him over they're about to sentence him and I think he has since been sentenced and mm-hmm. is, in, is in prison. That's in what they say. But they're about to sentence him and he says, listen, Your Honor, um, my lawyers have some files you probably want to see. And that got public. The files basically said that he'd been a British agent since 1994. Mm-hmm. And uh, please don't jail me. Apparently they did jail him. I suspect they just changed, you know, shaved the beard off, gave him a new identity or whatever. Maybe. But people like that are patsies as well, you know. They 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 pick the most clueless ones to act that act that part, you know. Uh, tell them that they're going to be a, a famous uh, preacher of radical Islam, and they'll have lots of people, you know. They're 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 handled, you know. They're 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 groomed yeah, in this way. A lot. He of was more deeply involved because the reason why he has no hands is has, because he has one. He has one hand. Oh. it's because it was blown off while making bombs as part of the. When helping the Bosnian extremists yeah. in the mid nineties. And he yeah. was there with MI6. Yeah, but those people are dupes as well. 
You know what I mean? Ultimately, they're, they don't know what's going on. They're being handled. And anybody who's being handled in that way in that kind of intelligence agency environment has no clue really what's really happening. And they have to be, by definition, they have to be stupid to get involved in that and not understand the nature of the beast with which they are working. Uh, and that's their kind of fate. They get, they get, they get burned, as they say. You know, they, let's just, uh, they're expendable. Mm-hmm. And in his case, he was sentenced to life in prison in January in New York. You know, but um, that's the problem. There's no end of um, naive, uh, grandiose type individuals in this world for them to pick from and to groom in that way. I mean, they can be smart enough, but they're never as smart as the people who are running the show. Uh, that that includes them running this farcical drama or that puts them kind of center stage for a while. Uh, so they're fundamentally stupid. Um but they're, you know, it's a, it's a murky world and we don't want to look too long into it because it might look back at us and snarl. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, I think we uh, will leave it there, but we're not going to, before we, before we let you go, we're going to uh, lighten things up a little bit with one more pop culture roundup from uh, Relic. Uh, I have no idea what he's going to talk about this week but I'm sure it's going to be very enlightening. Take it away. Well, hello and greetings, everyone. It's a relic here inviting you to join him as we head down the dark, urine-soaked, crack-littered back alleys of Beverly Hills and forage through the trash cans of the obscenely rich and famous dumpster diving for the rancid tidbits and putrid morsels of celebrity gossip for this week's gargantic edition of Pop Culture Roundup. And, as usual, we come to you today from our cozy 40-square-foot, rough-sawn log cabin, perched atop the bleak, snowbound shores of Upper Lake Canada, where rambunctious children of all ages are known to run outside in their eider-down suits and lay gently down upon the blankets of white, waving their arms and legs in order to create glorious snow angels. You know, it's a little-known fact that down in the subtropical jungles of the southern hemisphere, children there engage in a similar practice. Wearing only their swimsuits, they also wave their little arms and legs atop a hot bed of glowing rocks in order to make happy little coal devils. Isn't it remarkable how kids from vastly different parts of the world end up being pretty much all the same? Bless their shiny little hearts. In our first story... Tribute magazine is reporting, sadly, that a a Miss Catherine Chappelle, 
the visual effects coordinator for the uber-popular sex and gore-fest known as Game of Thrones, was accidentally killed by a wild lion who climbed in through the window of her SUV and mauled her to death while she was taking pictures on safari in Africa. When first hearing of the news, chronically obese, sea captain hat-wearing, nerdy Game of Thrones author George R. Martin offered his condolences to her family and expressed some relief that, for the first time, a Game of Thrones-related death was actually not his fault. The show continues production. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. In other news, GQ magazine tells us that Wedding Crashers actor and old-school comedian uh, Mr. Vince Vaughn gave the magazine a compelling interview where he praised Edward Snowden as a hero and not a traitor because he gave information freely to the American people. He also went on to rant about the government's terminally ineffective war on drugs and stridently upheld a citizen's right to bear arms. In a related story, another talented Hollywood actor, Mr. John Cusack, best known as the teen rebel who held a Peter Gabriel playing ghetto blaster over his head in that famous creepy stalking scene in the movie Say Anything, was quoted in an interview with the Daily Beast, saying that current president Barco Bummer is in many ways doing a worse job than that illiterate simpleton formerly known as the President George W. Bush. Well, Relic says kudos to both of these fine gentlemen for inserting a little truth into the normally asinine emanations coming from the celebrity interweb. Relic gives these two Hollywood superstars this week's Loch Ness Monster Award for the rare and mythical sighting of celebrity conscience. <laughs> In our next story, perpetually bald, die-hard leading man, Mr. Bruce Willis, made headlines recently when he reportedly left a very generous $900 tip to a German waitress while dining at a lavish restaurant in Berlin. You know, Relic here remains kind of suspicious of this story, kids. So, let's use our sixth sense and take a look at the facts so we can do the math. The dinner consisted of a party of 16 people who spent several hours feasting on lobster and fillet mignon and indulged themselves with fine wines, cocktails, and tequila shots. One could imagine the bill for a meal of this size would easily be several thousands of dollars, which would make his tip quite normal at a standard 15 to 20 percent. Also, 
when one figures in the fact that the last Boy Scout was paid $25 million for his last Die Hard movie and has an overall net worth of $150 million, it might humble us all to realize that Mr. Willis the Looper is quite a miserly tipper and in reality gave the poor waitress a paltry point zero 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 four percent of his last paycheck. And from that perspective, Mr. Twelve Monkeys makes Ebenezer Scrooge look like friggin' Mother Teresa. And as they say in the Bible, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich, bald Hollywood actor to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if that doesn't get your red mercury rising here in Sin City, then Hudson Hawk may never go the whole nine yards. Unless, of course, Armageddon was actually a documentary. I see dead people. Now that'd fix them. Fix them good. Hello, darkness, my old friend. And in our last story, we we have some obscure rock and roll news. Uh, Mr. Art Garfunkel, the meagerly talented, blonde, curly-topped, soprano-voiced lesser half of 60s singing duo Simon and Garfunkel, gave a scathing interview with Rolling Stone magazine where he throws some serious shade upon his former partner saying that Paul Simon has a Napoleon complex and calls him a jerk and an idiot for not keeping the band together. Now, it's quite a well-known fact that uh, Paul Simon himself wrote every single one of their hit songs with both music and lyrics and later went on to enjoy a long, successful career as a solo artist winning multiple Grammy Awards in the process. And considering the fact that Art Garfunkel's only contribution to the act was a a decent set of pipes and the voice of a helium-infused angel, it seems that all his recent bitching can be put down to a humongous case of sour grapes. All I know about that is, is... It says a lot about a man who has to trash-talk his former friends in order to make himself look good. So, here's a big helping of Relic's own down-home, no-fangled advice to Mr. Garfunkel, so that these old wounds may yet be healed. Sir, if you really want to be remembered as old friends like bookends in... America, and not the only living boy in New York, then you gotta stop lashing out like a defeated boxer and start feeling groovy. Otherwise, you're just faking it. Ask Cecilia or Mrs. Robinson what happens after you burn that bridge over troubled water when you're trying to be homeward bound to my little town. You might cry that I am a rock, 
but you come across as a most peculiar man and end up all sad and alone at the Scarborough Fair, listening to nothing but the sound of silence. A silence. Well, that's all there is for this week, kids. Thanks again for stopping by, but the time has come for old Relic to pry himself from this creaky rocking chair and hobble off to bed. So, until next time, it's your good friend Relic here saying, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. All right, thanks for that, Relic. Um, very interesting pop culture roundup this week. Um, we are going to leave it there for this week, folks. We hope you enjoyed the interview. We just want to say thanks to um, Anne Cadwallader again and recommend anybody who's interested to really get her book. If you only get one book, if you want to know about the Northern Ireland conflict, just read her book and uh, you'll understand an awful lot, far more than most other people in this world. So, um, so until next week we uh, thank you for listening and for chatting and whatever else you're doing while you're listening (laughs) have a good night thanks for listening see you next week bye bye